0: All right, you can switch it. Sweet. All right. Uh, So, uh, we talked about this a little bit ago in one of my many openings, is the uh, revenge movies. All of us love revenge movies. It's all over Hollywood. Uh, Some of our favorite movies are based upon it, where some underdog gets revenge over the evil big guy or whoever. And uh, we, as we know... Uh, all vengeance is the Lord, so we don't get to take any vengeance. It turns out that when he returns, that also he fights alone. When he returns at his second coming as a warrior, he does fight, but he fights alone. The Lord takes all the vengeance when he returns. And so today we're going to look at our worship of him as our, our Messiah, our warrior Messiah, who is all victory. And in his victory, he takes all of it. We can rest assured that victory is his and is truly coming in the future to this earth. So we're going to actually start off in Daniel chapter 7 today. In Daniel chapter 7, let's start with prayer and be thankful and grateful for uh, the fact that we have a Savior who is, has given us the victory in life and is coming again to give victory to the earth. Uh, to establish his own kingdom, of which we're going to be a part. We should have lives that are full of gratitude. And prayer is very much connected to gratitude to God. And so with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that you and you alone are the creator the victor, the savior, and the king. Everything is embodied in you. Life, love, spirit, truth. We are so grateful, Father, that through you and your son, Jesus Christ, that you have given of yourself and the thing, the, these things that are of you, you have given them to us. And so, Father, we can gratefully receive from you. We know, Father, that though we are in a world that is in turmoil, that is filled with war upon war, that is filled with evil and sin in which people seek to destroy each other just to get a few material things, that your servants are here worshiping you, living like our Lord. As we have seen, Father, you want us to be like him and you have made us to be like him. So, Father, as we look today at the victory of our Lord and his coming again, we ask that you apply this to our lives now. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. So we have uh, two passages uh, that we focus on today, which is Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 19, and both depict the destruction of of the Antichrist, and also the establishment of the kingdom by the Lord Jesus Christ. The destroyer of the Antichrist is the Lord. And this is in our main passage in 2 Thessalonians 2. That's why we're here. Uh, we want to see an in, in application to us and also just, I think for today, we're going to be reading a lot of scripture today. It's just appreciation uh, in our hearts of the knowledge and confidence that our Lord is returning to establish his kingdom. And the way it's presented in the scripture is just magnificent. Um, You know, the Bible is much more than a book of facts about God. It is literally beautiful in its presentation of things like this, you know, a victory Uh, of life over death, of good over evil, of grace over works, of um, eternal life and righteousness over sin. Some, though, wonder, you know, what does prophecy have to do with me now? You know, if this is about the future, what does it have to do with me? Well, when we look at the prophecy of the future, we get to watch the fulfillment of God's covenant faithfulness. Uh, We get to see God being faithful. We get to see God and our Lord, the Son of God, uh, doing what they promised to do. And we see it in the Old Testament, written thousands of years ago. And we see it in, for instance, the book of Revelation, which is to come. uh, And, you know, we, we have it in both places in which... and. You know, there's so much prophecy has already been fulfilled in our Lord and Savior that there's nothing to doubt here. Everything that he had has been prophesied about him in his first coming has completely been fulfilled by him, down to the, the very smallest of things. And so, of course, we expect it to come as it, as it has. And so this greatly encourages our hearts. It also keeps us from getting too... Uh, tied up with the things of this world, getting too disappointed, too discouraged with the way things occur here. Uh, As we'll see, we're in the midst of a kingdom uh, on the earth that is not of God. God is the, the king of kings for sure. Our Lord sits at his right hand, but the kingdoms of this earth are the creation of man, and not one of them is perfect, far from it. So what I decided to do with the second coming of our Lord this week is divided into four lessons. We have uh, already had the fact that in our first lesson on Sunday that Christ will visibly and bodily appear. Uh, Epiphania is the Greek word, like where we get our word epiphany from. Uh, in second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.8, he will appear and come. And we saw on Sunday that his, his appearance or his second coming is visible it's bodily. He will be seen from east to west. All will see Him. We applied that to ourselves in the fact that God says that we can see Him now, especially in First John chapter 1, where John says we, beheld, we held Him, we heard Him, we touched Him. And the way he writes that, he writes it as if we are to do it as well. And therefore, we can, in our lives now, through the Word of God and the Spirit of God, absolutely comprehend the reality of Christ. And I know we're not going to visibly see him in this life, but to see him in our hearts, to see him in the spirit of our minds, and so that his reality is as tangible as a person standing in front of you. That was Sunday. Through faith and obedience to God's word, Jesus Christ will become a visible reality to you. Secondly, which was yesterday, is that the warrior Messiah who fears the Lord in Isaiah chapter 11. Amazingly, this warrior fears the Lord. He has been given uh, gifts uh, that he used, which is the Word, the Spirit. We saw in uh, Isaiah chapter 11 that the Spirit rested upon him, and the Spirit gave him certain characteristics because he submitted, because he feared the Lord. Uh, he uh, obtained for himself, and of course we're talking about his humanity, he obtained for himself things like power and wisdom uh, and understanding and counsel. Uh, and with these, he lived his life and succeeded in fulfilling the plan of the Father. Now we saw yesterday an application to us that the Lord has given to us all of his, the things that he used. He gave them to us. He gave him to us as a gift, as a grace gift. He has given us his word. He has given us his spirit. And he has given us his armor. We saw that yesterday as well. That the Lord has a a belt of righteousness and faithfulness. That he has a breastplate of righteousness. That he has a helmet of salvation. And this sword that comes from his mouth is the word of God. In this armor he has given to us. And as Paul writes in Ephesians 6, we're to wear it every day. So today's lesson is about the second coming that shows the Messiah as awesome and victorious. Tomorrow we'll look at why we're supposed to be looking for him. There's uh, many reasons and very applicable reasons to the fact that we're to be constantly looking for his return. And we'll see that tomorrow. But today is about the second coming of the Messiah's victory. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, we open with verse 1, we have the vision of four beasts. Now, the vision of the four beasts is nothing, maybe when you read it through first, it is definitely odd, um, and maybe feels complicated, but it's not really, and uh, there's four beasts here, and when we look at each of them, we see that they represent four different kingdoms. Um, They're... Analogous, not analogous, but parallel with the vision in, in chapter 2 of Daniel, which you probably have heard of or know, which is the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had in a dream where he saw this grand statue that had a head of gold, uh, a chest and arms of silver, a belly of bronze, and thighs of bronze, and legs and feet of iron and clay. And you say, Well, what in the world is that? Well, there's four parts to that statue. There's four beasts here, and they mean the same things. So, we'll just uh, read through it first in verse 1. In the first year of Belteshazzar, now this is Nebuchadnezzar's son. So, he's after Nebuchadnezzar died, he became the king, the king of Babylon. In the first year of Belteshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay in his bed. So, this is Daniel's vision, not the king. And he wrote the dream down and related it, and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, there's a lot of imagery here, and as it should be. And the image of the great sea is the Mediterranean, and it represents the Gentile world. It generally does, in almost every case where it's used uh, as an image, the great sea represents the Gentile world. And four beasts, sorry, verse 3, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea different from one another. And the first was like a lion had had wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was, given to, was also given to it. So that's the first beast. It's a lion, has wings, the wings are plucked. And it stands up and has the mind of a man. Uh, so, just uh, if you're thinking, all right, are we going to learn? We're not going to learn today what the wings are and all of that, uh, because it would just get too complex and it would lead us away from what I want to do today. But um, just know that each of those has its own part that has a historical fulfillment. Uh, we're just going to see in general what they are. So that's the lion, and then the second beast is verse five. And behold, another beast, the second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side. And three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, uh, devour, uh, devour much meat. So the second beast is a bear. Uh, it has one side higher than the other. has three ribs in its mouth. And all of these have clear historical fulfillments. And verse 6, And after this, I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. So the the third beast is the leopard. And after this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it 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 destroyed the others, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now, one of the things to mark about this fourth beast is that not just here, and in several places is emphasized how different it is. It's different from the others, and this fourth kingdom is different from the others. While I was contemplating the horns in verse 8, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, Now, this little horn is the Antichrist. He came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by its roots. These are the three kings that uh, tried to fight against the Antichrist to stop him from taking over the world. They lose, and that's why they're pulled out by the roots. So, and three of the horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. And we see that this is the depiction of the Antichrist. He boasts of many things and sets himself up against God. So, real simply, the first beast is the Babylonian Empire. Now, the Babylonian Empire is going to get defeated. And what's going to take over is the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medo-Persian Empire is the, is the uh, bear. And the bear has those three, uh, the, the Persia is going to take over the others, all the others, and that's the one who's going to devour the three ribs. All of these have historical, uh, they're not really heavenly fulfillments of these visions, they're all historical. And um, so the Medo-Persian Empire is the second beast. The third one is, starts at Alexander the Great. And that's how it's a leopard. Alexander took over the, pretty much the whole world in a short amount of time. And that's the Hellenistic Empire. And so we say Hellenistic because, and if you notice in, in this uh, one with the leopard, he has uh, four wings. When Alexander dies, and he dies very young, his kingdom is split up between four of his generals. And those are the four wings. And they're in different, they take over different parts of the empire. Uh, and then, so we have these first three, and again, I, if you're curious about all the, the little bits here, you can go look them up, uh, and there's a thousand, tens of thousands of websites on this, on what they all mean. Uh, but I don't want to get distracted from the coming of our Lord, because that's, that's what we're, we're here about today. Um, and these three empires, they've come and gone. And so the fulfillment of the three ribs and the four wings, all of that has happened. And if when you, when we look at this or you look at this, you'll see how historically this has all already come true. And then comes the fourth, and he's the one that we're more concerned about. Oh, did I have the wrong... Oh, boy. First beast. Oh, I made two slides. There we go. Perfect. The fourth beast is the Roman Empire, but not just the Roman Empire. It starts with the Roman Empire. So It's depicted as having iron. We see it in the statue. It's iron and clay, Uh, but the iron smashes, and this beast has iron teeth and smashes and crushes, and this is what the Roman Empire did. The Roman Empire took over the whole Mediterranean and crushed everybody else. However, with this fourth beast, notice that the fourth beast ends with this little horn, right? It goes from the Roman Empire to the tribulation. And so we would say, and confidently, that we're in the midst of this kingdom of the fourth beast. We're at some part of it. Now I know there's gonna be interpretation is gonna vary in eschatology, that's where the most varied interpretations are, but just to keep it simple, we have the coming of the fourth beast, he's more terrifying, he's different, he smashes the other three, and then in Daniel's prophecy, you know, for us we know that thousands of years go by when we have this little horn, and the little horn in this passage and another passage is clearly the Antichrist, and he hasn't come yet. So if the fourth beast starts at the Roman Empire, and it does, then we're still in the midst of this. And this is what Jesus would call the age of the Gentiles. And he said, this is going to go on while Jerusalem is trampled underfoot, and it still is, until the age of the Gentiles are complete, then Christ will return. And so this fourth empire, now this beast does not represent the Antichrist. This beast represents the empire. And this empire goes through various stages. After the Roman Empire crumbles, uh, there are other empires to come, uh, and we go into it's fascinating, really, to see. In, in this whole history since the Roman Empire, imperialism has been the way of the world. And the Roman this is another great thing: the Roman Empire split into East and to West, and then they both were destroyed eventually. But the Eastern Empire lived on until the, uh, the Arabs conquered it um, and changed the capital to Istanbul, from Constantinople to Istanbul. And, yet, and so in the Roman Empire, there was a division between East and West, and that division still exists today. In, in, from that time until now, there's always been an East and a West. That's amazing. And that conflict between East and West continues. All right. So we're living at some stage in this kingdom of the fourth beast. And during our time, the manifestation of the final rumor, ruler of God is restrained, uh, is restrained by God. Not Sorry, let me say that again. <laughs> during our time, the manifestation of the great ruler of Satan, this little horn, this antichrist, is restrained by God. We've seen that in our passage in Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.7, he's restrained. But when he's no longer restrained, that his kingdom is going to be manifested and he will be manifested in that time is called the tribulation. Another way to look at it, as I said, we're in the times of the Gentiles. And the times of the Gentiles will not end until the coming of Christ. Now the coming of Christ you're going to see in the next vision by Daniel. But we're going to skip that just for a second and Go down to verse 19. Go to verse 19 with me. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, in which devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell. So the ten horns are going to, we'll see, possibly we'll see, not, maybe not this week, but the ten horns are ten kingdoms which are coming. They haven't come yet. There are three kingdoms of those ten who revolt against the Antichrist. He destroys them and takes full power. That's he's the little horn. And uh, horns often represent authority or power. So the ten horns were out the other horn which came up and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts and which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking and the horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. We see this in the book of Revelation, that he will overpower the saints. they are martyrs galore in heaven in Revelation 6, pleading with God for justice. Until, and here he comes. This is just so wonderful. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. The Ancient of Days here is God the Father, by the way. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said, now this is the angel interpreting for Daniel. The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. Notice, he devours the whole earth. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones, It will subdue three kings. So we see the horns represent kings, clearly. And ten of them, one arises. So he's really the eleventh king. And three out of the ten revolt. He kills them. And then he becomes, well, if you had ten and seven die, I'm sorry. If you had ten and three die, you have seven. And he would be the eighth, if that makes sense to you. Now, notice, so this is, he's going to subdue three kings. This is the Antichrist, twenty-five. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. Notice, the saints don't have power over him. He wears them down. He kills them. He martyrs them. We see this in the the tribulation. And, you know, and it goes to show us it's one of the things, and it's an application here. Don't take revenge. You cannot beat the system. The the system has power. The only one who has power over this world is God. The the post-millennial idea that the church is going to clean up this world to a point where Christ is going to think it worthy enough to return is just ridiculous. So he'll speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints to the highest one in verse 25, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. We'll look at that in a second. And they will be given into his hand for a time, Times and half a time. A time is a year. Times is two years. And a half a time is a half a year. So that's three and a half years. So this fits perfectly with all prophecy concerning Daniel's 70th week. And that in the second half of that tribulation is when this Antichrist, this little horn who boasts of great things, that's when he is going to take over in the second half of the tribulation. He'll have power and authority for three and a half years. But, and here's another, this is great. In verse 22, you start with until, right? Until is a word of time. But is a word of contrast. But, verse 26, the court will sit for judgment. Now, that's not a human court. That is God's court. The court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away. Noted we said that the Antichrist will be killed. It said Christ will slay him. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Christ will slay him with the breath of his mouth and put an end to him. And put an end to him, we see here. His kingdom comes to an end and this dominion of Gentile kingdoms that are anti-God. They're all going to go away forever. This is the last one. So, verse 26 again, but the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. That's you and me, by the way. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Ah. What a beautiful, beautiful passage. Uh, One thing to note here is this phrase, which is kind of confusing. You say, well, what isn't? Maybe, I don't know. But uh, in verse 25, it says, uh, he'll speak out against the Most High. We see that in 2 Thessalonians uh, 2. That he, this is his uttering of blasphemies. This is his um, uh, proclaiming himself to be above all gods. He'll speak out against the Most High, wear down the saints of the highest one, and will intend to make alteration in times and in law. Look at that. So, times and in law. And <coughs> this doesn't mean like times, like he's going to change the calendar. It doesn't mean that. The Hebrew word here refers to actual time. And, he, and what this is a way of saying that, and law means that which God gives as law. I mean, there's only one lawgiver. It's the Lord. And so we have time and law. He will make intention. He will intend, sorry, to make alterations in times and in law. That means he's going to try and control or change things that only God can. Only God can manipulate time. Only God is the lawgiver. This one tries to, in some way, alter the way of time. I'm not saying he's like time travel or anything silly like that. We're not given detail. It just he is going to try and do what God can only do. Put it that way. And however he tries to do that, it doesn't matter how he tries. He's not going to be able to do it. But like in Isaiah 14, Right? The the Satan says, I'll be like the Most High. In in our passage, Second Thessalonians 2, this Antichrist claims to be God. He takes a seat in the temple and says he's God. And here he's trying to do what God can do. Now, going back now to the opening of the vision, we see Right after the close of that, the victory of Christ over all. And so the final line of chapter 7 in verse 8, this is the final line of the opening vision that Daniel has. He says, While I was contemplating, contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled up by the roots before it. Those are the three kings that are destroyed. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and mouth and a mouth uttering great boasts and here's the response because <clears throat> as Daniel see in this vision the very next vision I mean God is the one showing him these visions so as God shows him the vision of these four empires that for Daniel are in the future uh, well actually it starts with Babylon so not all of them but uh Daniel sees the vision of these empires, these three empires. Then he sees this final beast, this fourth beast that's different and vicious with teeth of iron and crushes all the others. And he sees these horns and he sees the little horn and the little horn plucks up the other three horns and then he sees this boasting that he does. And then God wipes away that vision and gives him this vision immediately after. And this is how whenever you are... Right? You get visions in your own mind of this coming thing is going to be terrible. I'm talking about your everyday life. You get a thought in your mind that says this which is coming is going to be hard and difficult and awful. This which is coming, I'm not going to be able to overcome. This temptation, this person, this difficulty, this situation, it's It's a vision in your mind of how bad it's going to be. And what we want to do is what God does here for Daniel. As soon as you get that vision, wipe it out of the way. You can come back to it later, by the way. Take it out of the way and put this vision in its place just for a minute or two. And then come back to the next one. So you're presented with a problem. Move the problem aside and put the vision in your mind. Of the victory of your Lord. And you're a victor with him. In other words, get your eyes on him. Now go back and look at that problem again. Move it out of the way. Look at him. And then bring it back. And this is what God does for Daniel. So he says in verse 9. This is why I kept looking. Right? I kept looking. Until, another word, until means time, a little time goes by. Thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. This Ancient of Days is the Father. This is God on his throne. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. Now, this could easily be a description of the Son of God, and in fact, it is. But we know this to be the Father because the Son of Man is coming in the, in the next stanza. So this is the Father. But notice, and I have it on the board for you, the same characteristics as said of the Lord. In Revelation 1.14, this is where John the Apostle sees the Lord and he describes the Lord. This is the Jesus, resurrected Jesus. He says, his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. And we see here on this, we'll see it in a second. There's flames on this throne. There's this description of the Son of God is just like the Father, right? <laughs> but of course, we know or believers in the Trinity. We know that they're one, and this doesn't shock us. So I kept looking, verse nine, until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was white as was light, like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. <clears throat> now, this throne has wheels. Um, turns out many of the thrones of the ancient East, the eastern kings, had wheels. Uh, but these wheels we see in Ezekiel chapter 1, uh, if you're familiar. that's If you know the wheels that have eyes all over them, it's a very bizarre vision that Ezekiel has. But it, it's very parallel to this. You know, it's the two prophets. They're actually contemporary prophets, Ezekiel and Daniel. And um, this these wheels speak of God's providence. You know, this the they have eyes on them in the vision of Ezekiel, and they're looking over the whole earth, and as they turn, is like the turning of time, the turning of events, the turning of people. It's God's providence over all. But God's providence is here along with flames. His throne at the End there, verse nine is thrown as a blaze with flames, and that speaks of God's many judgments. This isn't the final judgment, by the way, because the Antichrist hasn't been judged yet. In this, like the, the judgment of the Antichrist is coming in this prophecy. So this, these flames are God's judgments all throughout history, and they're always just and they're always fair. And as God is judging from this throne, these wheels are turning, which are the providence of God over us all, over the whole earth. Always looking, omniscient, omnipresent. Always providing, and when he needs to, holding back, disciplining, judging, blessing, and he does it all perfectly. And then, Christ comes. And Christ's coming is a substitute, the millennial kingdom, of glory for that of the cross. The glory of Christ in his first advent is the cross. The glory of Christ in his second advent is his thousand-year reign. So Daniel 7.10 A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. These are his angels, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Now, we see these books in Revelation chapter 20. And in Revelation chapter 20, they're filled with the deeds of men. And this makes sense, because the throne has this fire, which is God's judgment, and the wheels, which are God's providence. And now the books are opened, and when the books are opened, the deeds of men are seen. And by the way, as you remember, the antichrist is a man, and what he has done, though he is empowered by Satan, he is fully complicit. And uh, being complicit, and is in his own free will, he is going to be judged. His deeds are in these books, just like us all. And verse 11, then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. Revelation 19 sees the fulfillment of this. He's cast into the lake of fire. As for the rest of the beasts, which we would say here the rest of these beasts are the other three. Because the vision of the beasts, of four beasts, had just come before. So, to recap, right, this vision is what? Four beasts. The fourth beast we just read here in verse 11 gets cast into the lake of fire. The rest of the beasts, their dominion is taken away. Well, what were the other beasts? I can tell you. Glad you asked, right? Babylon, Medo-Persia, and especially Greek, right? Hellenistic empire is all Greek influence. But Babylonian influence, we still have these influences in our world today, in our culture. They're heavily influenced of all of human history. And God says here, in this vision, that their dominion will be taken away. So, unite that with the fourth beast, which is the Roman Empire with all of that, and ending up and culminating in the uh, tribulation with the Antichrist Empire. We see here in verse 12, the rest of the beasts, their dominion is taken away. The, what does this mean? The dominion, the influence. And this would mean gov- type of governments, uh, literature, uh, or some, maybe not literature. Maybe so, I don't know. <laughs> Culture, religion, false religion, false gods. Everything that was in all of these kingdoms, including the United States of America, all Gentile kingdoms, all through history, everything that is not godly is gone forever. You know, you'd say, well, of course, you know, heaven is coming. or oh, the millennial reign is coming. But it's important to note because it's pointed out by here in Daniel's vision. Their dominion was taken away. It says, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. It fits beautifully with Revelation 13.2. And I hope this doesn't get too confusing for you. But Revelation 13.2, this, here the Antichrist, in book of Revelation, this is where he shows up. Well, not initially, but this is where he really shows up halfway through the tribulation. He comes out of the Mediterranean Sea, It's like we saw in this um Prophecy and the beast which I saw was like a leopard and his feet were like those of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. Those beasts sound familiar. They're the same three beasts in Daniel's vision. So why does the final beast have characteristics of them? And that is because he has taken into his life and his empire the cultures, the religions, the anti-God, all the stuff that happened in those empires. There's a lot of anti-God, uh, polytheism, paganism, art, literature, you name it. There's a lot of Greek, right? Greek philosophers. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. They're in our culture too. And in his culture He has taken them all. He has absorbed all of this, what he wanted. Got rid of the rest. Take what I want. And from a a conglomeration of them all, he has made his own empire. And that we see here in Revelation. See, he has the characteristics of all three. Now, going back to our passage in verse 12, as the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away he is cast in the lake of fire their dominions taken away that means everything that is anti-god in this kingdoms kingdoms of this world will end and it's a powerful way of saying it nothing godly will nothing ungodly will remain nothing so clear application to us why am i seeking for that which is ungodly I'm tempted to it. I'm tempted to it like any of you are. But when we know this, we have power to say, you know, why should I do that? When the temptation comes up, if I think of principles like this and many others, I'll say, you know what? I don't want anything to do with that. It's those things are going to be destroyed. The sin, the evil, the the... Addictions, the, uh, the wrong culture, the wrong entertainment, the wrong art and literature, everything that's wrong, the wrong movies, everything anti-God, it's going, it's going to be destroyed. Why should I pursue it? Why should I even look at it? And they're cast in the lake of fire. Here's the fulfillment in Revelation 19. We're going to go to Revelation 19. I thought I might get time. Well, we maybe read it quick. But Revelation, the two beasts, the beast and the false prophet, were thrown alive into the lake of fire with burns with brimstone. But, of course, here we're not done. And we have the Son of Man coming. Now we come. Daniel seven thirteen. So let's go back to verse 9. Let's recap. First in verses 1 through 8, we have the vision of the four beasts. There are four kingdoms. The fourth kingdom is the one that really stands out, who is really different, is the Roman Empire, but not just the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is gone. Some believe that it has to be revived for this to be fulfilled. That's not true. There's nothing in the scripture that says the final kingdom is in Rome. It doesn't say that. But anyway, so the Roman Empire starts it, and then we're still in the midst of it. Time is going to go on until the tribulation. And then, then, let's say this is somewhere near the end of the tribulation. If you want to put a time on it, you don't have to. It's the reality of it that's important. In verse 9, we have God's throne set up. I kept looking in verse 9 until thrones were set up. As they were set up, here is the Ancient of Days. He took his seat, his description, just like the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation 1. But this is the Father. His throne is fl- as ablaze with flames. His judgments throughout history. Its wheels are a burning fire. His providence to mankind. The grace of God to keep mankind going. Despite all of our failures and anti-God sentiments and our own neglect of our Creator, He has kept it going. Those are the wheels that keep turning. So His throne, and then the books are in verse 10. The books are opened. So He's going to judge. These are the deeds of men. The deeds of the Antichrist are obviously now moves directly in verse 11 to the Antichrist going into the lake of fire. So his deeds are worthy of what? The lake of fire. And I kept looking until the beast was slain. His body was destroyed. The rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away. And then the same phrase, I kept looking in verse 13. In the night visions and behold. With the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days. So the son of man, Jesus' favorite title for himself in the Gospels, He uses it like a hundred times. One like the son of man. And believe me, when he called himself the son of man in first century Judah, they knew he was talking about this passage. No one ever called themselves the Son of Man who was a Jew. Uh, And, you know, they knew what he meant. He knew what he meant. So one like the Son of Man was coming and he came up to the Ancient of Days who was presented before and was presented before him. So it's just like a prince coming to a king. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Notice that's all nations, Jew and Gentile. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so there it is. That is what we've all been waiting for. What we're all looking forward to. And in uh, this is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. It's not. not, This isn't the first mention of it by by any means. But as uh, the Lord said to David through the prophet Nathan, "Your house and your kingdom shall endure before Me forever. Your throne shall be established forever." And Jesus, his other title as Son of David, he's the Son of Man, Son of David, and here, and this is fulfilled. When will it be fulfilled? When he returns again at his second coming. This, of course, not the rapture. I'm I'm, like assumed that we all knew that. We're not here talking about the rapture. We're talking about the second coming of Christ. So if you go with me to Matthew 26, because he's going to quote this concerning himself. Look at Matthew twenty six sixty two. So this is when he's on trial before the Sanhedrin, the just hours before he's nailed to the cross. And they've brought uh, witnesses against him. They can't find two to agree. And they bring witness after witness because, of course, they're following the Mosaic law. And they need two witnesses to agree they can't find him. And they finally find two guys who say that they and agreed that Jesus said he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. So in verse 62, the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, the high priest is fed up. He's is probably, his patience is at an end. And he just gets right to the point. Are you the Christ? That's Christos in the Greek. To every Jew in that room, that means Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you shall see. The Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That is just what we read in Daniel 7.13. The Son of Man sitting at the right, well he doesn't say sitting at the right hand of power, but in Daniel 7.13 he presents himself to the Ancient of Days. Now you're not there, but I'll read it for you. Behold, with the clouds of heaven one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Daniel 7.13 Jesus is quoting this of himself. Here, just hours before his cross, that you are going to see this. right? I'm going to appear. Every eye is going to see this. He says this to the high priest who is, does not believe upon him. Are you the Christ? He says, well, let me tell you something. I'm the Son of Man. From Daniel 7.13. I'm the one that Daniel saw. You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And of course, that's when then the high priest tore his robe saying he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? And then they started beating the heck out of him. And this is fulfilled. Look at go to Revelation 1.7. seven. One seven. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who have pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, Amen. In Revelation one seven. Behold he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those who have pierced him. All right? How amazing. <laughs> this high priest is going to see him. Right, he only hope he became a believer afterwards. Even those who pierced him all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him even so. Amen. And so in our Daniel vision we see the you know the end of the kingdom, go forward. Since we're here, let's look at Revelation 18. Go to Revelation 18:15. Let's read bits of it. But we see, you know, Daniel with Revelation they overlap so beautifully, um, and that's because God's prophecy is just ironclad true. Revelation 18:15 says, "The merchants of these things, meaning all the stuff that made everybody rich." Who became rich from her, her is Babylon, will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Whoa, whoa, the great city, she who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. This is the end of Babylon. It says the angel takes the millstone and throws it into the river, and that is the fall of Babylon. Babylon the Great. Meanwhile, while they're weeping over the loss of their wealth, the end of this final city. These are the elites. There aren't many of them. It's not the poor that are weeping. <laughs> I would say many of the poor are probably saved people. Uh, here it is. Not that there's, I'm saying that all rich are not saved. I'm not saying that. But, uh, and then in Revelation 19:11, heaven opened and behold a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war, and his eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped with blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean. That's us coming with him. We're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. And so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he, as he, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his, robe, on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. To us, these prophecies mean that we must live our lives in victory, not in defeat. And no matter what happens to us, no matter what problems we face. And, you know, pastors say this all the time, but it's so absolutely true. No matter what it is, you must have victory over it. God has given it to you. Find it. Find somewhere in God's Word, through prayer, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to overcome that which is burdening you. God put wall in our path that he wants us to climb over. Climb over Him. We often pray for God to remove the wall. He will say no. Climb. Get over that. Use my power, my word, my sword, my armor. Live your life in victory. Secondly, know the schemes of the enemy. The enemy wants to, and very deceitfully, place your heart in bondage to make you a slave to something. Know what things can enslave you that damage or absolutely hinder, in some cases, your relationship with God. Do not be in bondage to this world kingdom. We see what's happening to it, what will happen to it. We see who's the victor. And don't wait. At the end of Revelation in 22, he says it twice. I'm coming quickly. So don't wait. He's coming quickly. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for our Lord and his coming. We thank you, Father, that you are the Ancient of Days, that your throne is one that looks upon us every day, and that when you open those books and all of our sins are in them, or at least they were, what you see of all believers is the blood of Christ. We thank you so much, Father, that you have nailed our the things that are about us that were in that book, you have nailed to the cross, taken out of the way. With such gifts, Father, and forgiveness and love, we must be victorious in our lives. Grant it to us, Father, that we may see. In Christ's name, amen. Deb end recording.